the 37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back. Episode 183 of Pixelated Paranormal. And we kind of had to change things on the fly because Steve, just like he said he would, got called away on the job. So we hope he's out there driving safe tonight, taking care of business. And so that means Preston and I are at the wheel. Yeah, we're in the Cadillac and Steve's in the Ecto-1. <laughs> right. Oh, that's funny. Whenever he uh, texts us that he got called out last minute, I did send him a little uh, gif of <laughs> the Ecto-1 tearing around a street corner. So, yeah, we had plans to go ahead and do a, a really awesome, awesome missing 411-style disappearance tale, and we will still do that. Um, that'll be on our next episode. But oddly enough, the story we wanted to tell you guys about does have a little bit of a prologue almost a prequel of sorts that I came across while I was wrapping up the uh, research and production of that episode. So inadvertently, Steve kind of did us a solid and will actually tell you guys the precursor to the disappearance tale. I don't want to say who it is because I don't want to ruin it, but it'll be the very next episode. So think of this episode as kind of a precursor, a prequel to episode 184. But before we get started, uh, anything new? Anything exciting you want to share? No. Fuck yeah, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> same same shit, different day, dog. Same shit, go. different day. I hear that, dude. Yeah, I can't think of anything exciting or new for myself. We're hopefully going to go to Colorado next weekend and check out Boulder and check out Estes. So fingers crossed that gets to happen if things are still safe enough to travel. Oh, and yeah. then going off of your advice and Big Dobbs' advice, I think what we're going to do is just drop by the Stanley, stick our heads in, walk around for a minute, maybe grab a whiskey uh, and a plastic cup, drink it on the mezzanine, and then, I don't know, buy an enamel pin and go home. Yeah. You know, it, the uh, downtown Estes for me was a lot of fun just because of like all the different shops and stuff. Yeah, And, um, you know, when we went, it was still open. So, you know, you could get like, there's a little like, um, like a whiskey tavern there and the lady sells like a little distillery and, um, she has like samples and gives you like a history lesson. So the, the whole town's got a cool vibe, but my, my biggest problem with the Stanley was, um, you know, the, it's kind of cliche cause it's like every other haunted hotel out there. Like you're not guaranteed an experience. And then, you know, the ghost tours are kind of like all the same. But that seance show that uh, that they put on, there's like a, a little seance show that you can go to where they talk to the spirits and stuff. That's pretty fucking rad. Like, I fuck the ghost tour. Don't worry about the ghost tour. Just go get a drink. You can take the drink with you to the seance. Do the seance. <laughs> it's a pretty good time. Okay. Hell yeah. Well, we might just see if they have that going on. I think we might try to go there Sunday, the Sunday before we head home. So get meat in Boulder. Get meat in Boulder. There's that little oh, honey. We certainly will, man. Yeah. I remember you and Jeffrey both saying you guys like that place. So Oh yeah. 
yeah, that's that's the plan. Um, and it looks like everything's open right now, so I think there shouldn't be much of any issue. We'll find out. But yeah, I'll, I'm going to call downtown and make sure everybody's open before we head that way. Fuck you, but, COVID. Uh, yeah, no doubt. Cool. Well, let's just get into it. How about it? So tonight's story, otherwise, is known as The Tale of the Night Shift Nurses and the UFO Saucermen. It takes place just before midnight, New Year's Eve of 1969, in British Columbia, where otherwise, the people living there were getting ready to celebrate the New Year's Eve ring-in. Hugs, kisses, champagnes, copious amounts of booze, fireworks, and other tomfoolery. Unless you're Lieutenant Dan, then you're just sitting there pouting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I ain't got no legs. Everybody was basically just ready to party and ring in the new year. Except for a young night nurse named Doreen Kendall, who herself was making a 26-mile commute from her home to the hospital she worked at as an overnight nurse. Now, Doreen Kendall makes her way to the hospital, checks in, puts her stuff away, and begins to make her nightly rounds, along with a staff of about five other nurses. Now, the hospital they were at, think of more like a nursing home. So you've got different patients, you know, staying in rooms that are, you know, three to four beds apiece. The dedicated group of nurses were diligently making their way around the hospital, taking care of all the patients especially the extended care unit for elderly patients. This is where fellow nurse Frida Wilson, at approximately five in the morning, made a very interesting discovery. While making her rounds, she noticed that one of the older geriatric patients was very restless that night. Assuming that the aged patient was just having kind of a bad night because maybe she was too warm, or maybe it was a little too hot in her bedroom, she decided she'd open the window to let a little bit of a night breeze come through, kind of cool things down a little bit. While she was making her way over to the window to adjust the temperature for the elderly patient, at the same exact time, her supervisor was tending to a patient on the other side of the privacy curtain near the doorway in the same room. As soon as the nurse parted the curtains, she was startled and shocked when she was hit by a brilliant, white, dazzling light. After a few minutes, her eyes adjusted to such the bright light, and she spied something that would change her life forever. Nurse Kendall described what she saw illuminating the hospital yard that early morning. Just as I pulled the drapes, a brilliant light hit me in the eyes. It was still dark outside, but about 60 feet away, right above the children's ward to my left, there was this object so big and bright, I could see everything clearly. <laughs> is, this, is this how the nurses are going to speak in yes. our jail? <laughs> yes. Oh, boy. Uh. Nurse Kendall would go on to describe the unusual hovering object itself, which she claimed was slightly above her and the approximate width of about five or six hospital windows, and nearby the children's ward. 
This strange measurement would put the diameter of this Saturn-shaped craft at nearly 50 feet across. Kendall went on to give a detailed description of the vehicle she saw. The object was circular. It had what I guess you would call a top and a bottom. The bottom was silvery like metal and shaped like a bowl. There was a string of bright lights around it like a necklace. The top was a dome made of something like glass. It was lit up from the inside and I could see right into it. As if this wasn't strange enough, Nurse Kendall claimed she could also make out the outline of what looked to be two male-like figures wearing masks standing in the top of the craft. One of these men seemed to be positioned behind the other, appearing to be slightly smaller. Now, she goes on to say this could have been an optical illusion because of her perspective. But according to Kendall, both these two beings were facing her to the right, looking from the hospital. Kendall went on to describe these headgear-clad beings in her own words. They look like fine, tall, well-built, well-built men. Ooh. They were dressed in ooh, tight-fitting suits of the same material that covered their heads, but their hands were bare. And I noticed how human they looked. Their flesh seemed just like Oz. I have a feeling this is not how she spoke when she gave these descriptions. <laughs> but alas, that is the charm of pixelated paranormal. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point in Kendall's story, she observed the odd craft was almost tilting towards her, as if it leaned forward. She spied two knee-high stool-like chairs behind the two entities, and she also noticed what she thought was an instrument panel, which looked like it was made from chrome or a metallic substance. The panel, the panel took up about half of the UFO inside and was full of different circles and dials and levers of various sizes. Even more intriguing, however, was the larger of the two beings set closest to the front of the transparent bubble on top of the craft and seemed to have his attention focused on the device on the instrument panel before him which forced the nurse to speculate that these creatures may have been having some kind of technical or engine difficulty. Nurse Kendall would go on to assume the reason she was so enthralled by this allegedly extraterrestrial technology was due to the fact that she herself came from a long line of race car aficionados, and so she was always interested in automotive and other mechanics. According to Nurse Kendall, The man in front was staring at the panel as if something very important was going on, and I wondered if they might have had some mechanical trouble. I even thought they might have landed on the roof of the hospital and then had trouble taking off, maybe because I'm so mechanically minded, but I suspect that they were having mechanical troubles and had to stop to make repairs. Now, as bizarre as such a sight would be, Nurse Kendall claimed later that she never felt any sense of fear during the entire encounter. She only felt the feeling of being curious, but otherwise completely calm. I never felt so peaceful in all my life. I wish I could have talked to him, maybe got the number. I was completely oblivious to anything else and felt no fear. In fact, I would have loved to gone on for a ride 
And if the men had spoken to me, I would have answered quite naturally. Now, as she goes on staring at the larger of the two entities, fumbling with the instrument panel, as if right on cue, the second, smaller entity then raised his head slowly and turned towards Kendall. Although his face was concealed inside of a helmet, she felt the being was staring directly at her, and she would go on to describe the harrowing interlude as thus. Oh my, he seemed to look right at me, but I couldn't see his face. It was covered by a darkish material that looked softer than the rest of his suit. I'm sure he saw me because he touched the other man on the back. He was wearing a darkish fabric, similar to the uniform and headgear, which obscured his facial features. Once Nurse Kendall's presence had been brought to the larger alien's attention, he began engaging what seemed to be evasive maneuvers of the craft. The entity reached down and grabbed what Kendall described as a lever with a ball on top of it, almost like a joystick of an airplane. It stuck out of the floor of the craft from what she could see, and she described what she thought would be the pilots of the craft in the efforts to make a hasty retreat. When he did this, the man in front reached down and took a hold of something like a lever beside him. I'll never forget how deliberately he did it. He pushed it back and forth and back and forth, and the saucer, or whatever you call it, started to circle slowly, still close to the building and in an anti-clockwise direction. Kendall was so impressed by what she thought she was seeing, she momentarily forgot about Wilson, who was standing right behind her. She was so afraid that these evidently shy creatures might hasten their departure, even more if she made such as a single sound or movement that she remained silent, though she did wave over her superior to catch a glimpse of these creatures in this astonishing vehicle before it would leave. Then, when I did think of it, I guess I hesitated. I felt I mustn't make a noise or a peep or anything that would break the trend of what was happening. I was so taken with the flying saucer that I didn't call anyone. I felt mummified and fascinated. Stood there for about five minutes watching before I called another nurse, Miss Frieda Wilson. When it started to pull away, I realized no one would believe me, and that's when I ran, and I called Miss Wilson. She said, what on earth is that? And I said, it's a flying saucer. Miss Wilson later would describe in her own words what she saw of the event that transpired. Yeah, I, 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 hold on, let me get a drag. Yeah, I, I, I noticed Mrs. Kendall standing at the window, and uh, I wondered what she was looking at. In fact, uh, I was just going to see when she beckoned to me, and then I saw this great big light over the patio outside the children's ward. I said it was quite a bit larger than a car, it looked circular in shape, and the far side seemed to be higher than the near side. It was moving around slowly, and then it started to move away. I didn't really see any top or bottom to it. It was just tremendously bright. At this point, Kendall and Wilson both sprinted down to the nurse's station to try to get the attention of any fellow nurse they could. They managed to snatch two of their understandably skeptical cohorts who didn't necessarily believe their astonishing tale, but followed them back anyway. This would be Miss Appleby and Miss Clarkson, who quickly followed them back to the room. 
The quartet of nurses rushed to the window, but by this time the hovering vehicle had moved far enough away from the hospital that the alleged extraterrestrial pilots were no longer visible, but the craft itself, still illuminated, was in plain sight. Nurse Wilson confirmed Nurse Kendall's assertion that the UFO was over five window panes in length and added that she saw a red light at the base. All the nurses agreed that the spinning ship was completely silent. The four nurses watched as a dish-shaped craft slowly drifted off southeasterly, disappearing behind a grove of trees that went alongside the property line of the facility. Just then, two more nurses arrived, missing the entire ordeal completely. Now, at this point, one of the nurses, whose identity is surprisingly difficult to discern considering how well-documented the case is, raced down the hallway to the bathroom on the other side of the building, where she was able to catch a glimpse of the UFO rotating five times and then shooting off across the sky like a streak. Now, this is mind-boggling, of course. So many medical professionals observed an estimated 50-foot-long flying saucer gyrating over a hospital, but there are still some UFO skeptics who have pondered as to why Miss Wilson, who was the second witness, didn't also see the humanoid pilots inside the craft, and whether or not this is indicative of some sort of disingenuous story from Nurse Kindle. It seems kind of crazy considering that there were three additional witnesses who were present to confirm the reality of the flying saucer that whizzed by the hospital. However, Nurse Kendall dismissed the skeptic's doubts as a simple matter of timing. I think Miss Wilson must have just come a bit too late. After the thing circled four or five times, it started going away. Further along by the roof of the children's ward, I couldn't see inside of it either. Nurse Kendall claimed that the entire experience had left her with no anxiety or no ill feelings at all, just the same calm feeling she had during the entire encounter. She was also unruffled by what she knew to be the inevitable scoffing that was sure to come her way by local skeptics and co-workers alike, and she claimed this event had only cemented her previous held belief that UFOs do indeed exist. The reason I was so terrifically interested was because I always believed there was an unidentified flying objects, and now I am absolutely convinced. Now, as sure as Nurse Kendall was, unfortunately, Nurse Frida Wilson didn't share Nurse Kendall's belief or excitement in UFOs, nor did she easily go along with the same demeanor in the face of the unknown visitors. When she saw the abnormal aircraft that flew through the sky, she felt a sense of alarm, a sense of dire fear. It's interesting to note the difference in interpretations that each of these two women experienced. Now, some researchers have theorized that Kendall's relaxed demeanor in the face of such a fantastic encounter was simply due to the fact that she was overcome by some type of hypnotic wave emanating from the ship or the creatures that drove it thus giving her a mild euphoric buzz, which she describes as a tingling sensation. Others hypothesize, however, it was the inherently peaceful manner of the two 
masked UFO knots, along with her willingness to accept the simple fact that alien life forms exist from out of this world, that kept her calm and relaxed. Kendall, wanting there to be an official record of the incredible incident, decided she should record it at the hospital's working schedule. This is the entry she jotted down in the journal. At 5 a.m., I saw a flying saucer as low as the third floor of the hospital when I pulled the curtains. There were two men, or figures, in the flying or in the dome flying towards Victoria. The bottom of the saucer was brilliantly lit and also the dome. New Year's morning. A reconstruction later of the proceeding would reveal that Nurse Kendall, who admittedly said she had a poor sense of direction, had actually mistaken what she suggested to be the flight path of the UFO towards Victoria in her memo. This, according to researchers, implied that the flying saucer instead headed south when later sightings would confirm it actually traveled northeasterly, although it might have just as easily changed its flight path entirely. Now, despite her normal calm demeanor, Kendall's family and co-workers noticed a change in her behavior over the next few days following the incident. For at least a week after that, I didn't feel quite like my usual self. I think that normally I'm an outgoing sort of person, but now I'm subdued. And some of the other nurses said I seem preoccupied. <laughs> well, I think anybody would be preoccupied after you saw a freaking UFO and two aliens who were driving it. Yeah, they made her tingly, so she's like, oh, <laughs> new sensations, baby. Couldn't help but look outside the window and hope. That's right. Soon, I don't blame her, I would hope to. Soon <laughs> after Kendall regained her composure and the hospital routines were quickly reestablished, this still would not be the last run-in that the citizens of Vancouver Island would have with these alleged alien beings. As if the word of four professional caregivers at a hospital wouldn't be substantial enough to warrant serious debate for the case of one of the most significant close encounters of the 20th century to come out of Canada, there would still be completely unrelated eyewitness testimonies that would seem to corroborate the fact that there was, indeed, an anomalous object soaring in the skies above Vancouver Island on January 1st of 1970. The first of the additional eyewitnesses to come forward, outside of the nurses and their tale, would be a husband and a wife who were returning home following a rowdy New Year's Eve celebration. The husband, whose name was kept out of the official report, admitted to having had a couple drinks at the party that night, but insisted to his wife and reporters the experience that they had with the UFO left him cold sober afterwards. He also felt the incident was such a significance that he was willing to reveal his illegal driving condition to researchers, which would seem to indicate just how sincere his testimony was. Yeah, dude went on record saying he was uh, drinking and driving there. <laughs> According to their account, the married couple was driving home around 5 a.m. that morning, which means well, we're assuming we're dealing with the same potential interstellar device, interstellar craft, their sighting occurred either directly before or just after the account reported by the nurses at the hospital. The man who was a trucker insisted he and his wife had seen a brilliant white light, which he says was as big as a house, 
that was hovering above their home. The eyewitness further explained that the object was oval-shaped and admitted several shafts of light which pointed downward, uniting into one single shaft. The couple later explained that this shape of the craft was similar to a child's spinning top. The pair stared at the strange craft for just a few more minutes before it abruptly soared skyward and disappeared from view, buzzing off into the night sky. While admitting to being slightly drunk, he emphasized that the uh, truth of his statement and his wife's account was thus. Uh, hold on here, Norma Jean. Hold my roadie for me. Let me let me get another sip here. Oh, what the fuck's a roadie? Uh, you know, that's what, uh, when you're on the road and you crack a cold one open, god damn it. <laughs> okay, gotcha. This was hold the on. 70s, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, man. Oh, god, that cigarette's good. All right. Listen, I might have had a few drinks, goddammit, but I know perfectly well that it had to do with anything what I saw. And my wife here, Norma Jean, she's all too. <laughs> I set my phone down and lost my place. Hold on. <laughs> At this point, the chronology of the events gets a bit garbled, but when going through the different accounts... It seems the next alleged sighting would occur later that same morning when a grade school teacher's aide named Edith Beeling, along with another school aide, two additional students and one teacher, and even the school secretary, claimed to have all seen an unusual craft above the Alexander Elementary School where they all worked. This group first saw the silent spinning aircraft through the window of the grammar school. Now, this testimony is from Miss Beeling. Well, we saw it through the window from inside the school at first. Then we rushed outside to get a better look. We were all pretty excited, and I think there was one who was even quite frightened. I felt like ringing the school bell, but I decided I better not. The ring definitely looked like it was made of some solid substance. It was like a, a really heavy hula hoop and material that looked thick and rolled up plastic. It seemed to change size slightly, perhaps because it was moving up and down. And uh, we didn't have any real idea what the size of it was, but I'd say a large plane maybe could have fit into it about, oh, 15 times. Good God, that's huge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> While Miss Beeling was convinced the object was a hula hoop shape, she did concede later that it was also an overcast day outside, therefore it was a little difficult for her to completely tell what shape this strange craft might have been. It could have indeed had a gray-colored center that she just couldn't see because of how murky the clouds were. But regardless of whether or not the craft was ring-shaped or solid... The eyewitnesses all agreed they were looking at a solid object, not just some kind of illusion from a cloud formation. The group said the sighting lasted about three minutes before the craft disappeared from view. The rest of that New Year's Day would prove to be less eventful for most, that is, until the sun went down that night. This would be when one of the most noteworthy sightings of the entire event would shock a UFO flap across Canada. 
A 22-year-old nautical pilot and shipwright by the name of Jin Drummond had used his boat-building expertise to change an aged tugboat into a comfortable home, which he shared with his 18-year-old bride, Diane, and their son. This boathouse was moored by a jetty adjacent to the home of Jim's mother, B. Drummond, whose house rested right on the shoreline of the Mill Bay. Bree would be the first to bear witness to the extraordinary floating craft, when at about 7 p.m. that night, she walked out her back door to call her son and family in for a New Year's dinner, and she described the beginning of the unusual event that would prove to be every bit as bizarre as what the nurses had encountered earlier that morning. Seven o'clock, and Jim and Diana were still on the boat, anchored close to the shore. When I went outside to call them to dinner, then I noticed a light in the sky moving over the bay. I couldn't tell how big it was. It was so bright, and it had a yellow-orangey glow like sunlight, but it could have been my cataracts. I got so <laughs> excited, I yelled to my son to look. <laughs> I just pictured Billy Madison off of that one. <laughs> Jim heard his mom hollering excitedly from her back door and instantly looked up towards the sky. And he couldn't believe his eyes as what he saw was an uncharacteristic object. And he wasted no time in retrieving both his telescope and his camera from within the cabin. Later, he would tell reporters that in the course of his job as a ship's pilot, he was accustomed to calculating the bearings of off-far, sorry, far-off objects, which is, which is why he had confidence in the estimations he made regarding the strange flying craft he and his mother saw that evening. Listen, man, I looked up and I saw the light coming in from the north, just about the line of our boat. It was skimming light under the overcast, which was about 900 feet. I ran to the cabin and I grabbed my telescope, my binoculars, and my camera. My wife came out with me to look, but oh geez, we were excited. <laughs> so unfortunately, Jim assumed that what he was seeing was just a smudge of light against the dark blackness of the sea. So he set down his camera and then began observing the UFO through his telescope. And Jim described what he saw that night as this. Uh, it was sort of a egg-shaped, uh, you know, vertical position, but the, the top and the bottom were um, indistinct. It seemed to be transparent on the top, and inside I thought I could see some lights, but I couldn't make out any details. Oh. <laughs> now, with the exception of the necklace of lights, what Jim reportedly saw along with his mother matched almost identically to what the nurses, nurses had seen that morning. Then, without warning, the radiant amber-colored object plummeted nearly 300 feet from where it was and landed hovering above the ground, right between the tugboat and Jim's mother's house. Uh, just at that point, something came out of that thing. Goddamn. Which, by then, had slowed down, had slowed down almost to, to a stop. It was like a ray of light, very thin, neon tube. And it was in pieces, man. Something like the, the dots and dashes of Morse code. It really felt like it was talking to me. And then it came down in a curve, and then it flashed right out, all, all at the same time. My hair just stood up on the end, and I couldn't imagine anything like that. 
And just when things seemed like they couldn't get any worse, the object suddenly shot back up into the sky to its previous altitude and then took off like a streak into the southern sky just out of their sight. side of my house, but I, I couldn't see over the trees. Uh, I tried to phone some of the neighbors, but I couldn't get through to the party line. Now Jim continued to watch through his telescope as a strange craft took off through the night sky, marveling at the curiosity of the strange structure. Later, he would testify that he was 100% sure it was not a conventional aircraft due to the irregular shape and lack of any colored navigational lights or sound that he was used to in traditional earthly aircraft. It was brighter in the middle and... I could see four distinct lights of the same color that looked like tips of candles, only bigger. I never heard of anything that could maneuver that slow and fast at the same time without making any sort of noise. Now, additionally to Jim and his mother, there were several other witnesses that went on to see strange things that same night in Vancouver Island. Judge George Harlett and his wife were entertaining three guests that night to celebrate New Year's dinner when they suddenly saw an egg-shaped craft. With their home being located directly behind B. Drummond's house, the Hallets and company were in a unique position to confirm what Jim and his mother had saw, indeed, an egg-shaped UFO craft. Uh-huh. And then just moments following both the Hallett and the Drummond UFO sighting, the strange craft made its presence known again on Mill Bay. This time, the glowing egg-shaped craft appeared to be... Uh, this time, the strange glowing craft would appear to yet another dinner party, in which, being hosted by Arthur Gillum and his wife at the Deer Lodge restaurant just off the island highway south of Mill Bay. While the sighting occurred at a greater distance than either the Drummond's or the Hallett's sightings, all of the observers in attendance to the party agreed they saw a colossal glowing sphere cruising over the Sanic Peninsula, about 10 miles to the east. According to Arthur Gillum, All we could see was a large ball of light moving quite slowly. Much slower than an airplane. It must have been very bright for us to see it from that distance. I don't think a helicopter would have been that bright. <laughs> so what exactly was it the citizens of Vancouver Island and Duncan would go on to see? Was it a UFO? Was it some kind of earthbound craft that nobody had seen before from the Canadian government or perhaps the U.S. government for that matter? First off, it offers up an amazing amount of corroboration between several different witnesses. No matter what they saw, everyone agrees they definitely saw something indescribable. It's impressive to see the amount of people that would go on to report what they had saw. Nurses, truck drivers, boat operators, families, partygoers, and more. All seem to have seen the same thing over the course of those two days on Vancouver Island. Sadly, many of the eyewitnesses involved with this case are no longer with us, but their accounts remain as testimony to one of the most enigmatic and intriguing close encounters of all time. 
And it's worth noting here that when the hospital redid the facade of the hospital, oh, the CDH, sorry. And it's worth noting here that when the hospital redid the facade of the structure in the 1970s siding, they embellished the site of the new facade with a huge circular starburst commemorating what those four nurses saw that one faithful New Year's morning. Now, some of you might be wondering why we brought up the story to begin with, other than being a very interesting UFO sighting. Well, I know why. This story... <laughs> remember, this story... when we, remember when we did the Phantom Black Dogs episode, and I yeah. just fucked you over with that, that two-hour dialogue of the Cogni accent? Oh boy, that was hard. I think you're trying to get back with, you know, back at me tonight with all these different <laughs> like voices that I had to do because dude, my throat hurts right now. Like Does I, it? Oh, I, you poor thing. Yeah. Yeah, I can't I can't even smoke now cuz it's just so <laughs> tore up. Now, hey, to be fair, your notes on that episode said Cockney accent, British accent, English accent. <laughs> Mine just didn't have any accent listed. All those were ad-libbed by you, sir. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Professionally ad-libbed by you, our number one voice actor on the show. Well, the reason why we brought up this story is it paves an interesting way as a prelude to our story for next week on episode 184. Now, I don't want to give away the name because it gives away the story and gives you all a chance to research what exactly we're going to talk about. So let's just say this. Though what happened in Vancouver Island would truly be bizarre, it would not be the last time that extraterrestrials may have visited Vancouver Island in the city of Duncan. Though the next time they visited, they may not have left alone. So join us next time on episode 184 for a harrowing tale akin to Missing 411 stories and the like. All right, you got anything else to add? Fuck no. Dude, Sweet I'm so worn there. out. Oh, I'm spent. <laughs> <laughs> Poor thing. Go make yourself yeah. a hot toddy or a yeah. chamomile tea. Ooh, I got all wet and tingly just like that nurse, and then bam. <laughs> <laughs> Except for your two beings are probably just two more cans of beer sitting on your counter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, folks, on behalf of Steve, thank you for listening tonight. Please catch us on our Instagram, PXL Paranormal. Please check out the Facebook, The Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. We want to say hi to all the new listeners and all the new followers. Thank you so much. Tell your friends about the show. We'd love to have them listen. Please go rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us become more and more known, more and more findable, easily accessible by new listeners and people looking for shows like ours. So subscribe and like on YouTube. Yeah, please. We're on YouTube, Spotify, all sorts of great channels. And also, what would be a little fun is uh, if you guys wanted to call in and leave us a voicemail, I think we're going to plan on another listener story episode to celebrate our five-year anniversary in May. So if you've got a story you want to share, please give us a call on our Google Voice number. It's 913-662-3144, and you should be able to leave a voicemail that's roughly not quite three minutes long. So if your story might last a little longer than that, you can call back and finish your story or record yourself telling the story and email it to us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Preston, what do you got? And as always, if you need a beard, 
if you want a beard. If you want to grow a beard that will leave people tingly and all euphoric on the inside, just like those aliens, check out BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order and get some tingly, good-smelling scents like Dundee, Cedar, Bay Rum, Sweet Tobacco, Fresh, Citrus, Mint, and Classic. Huzzah. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the Wichita area, please swing down to CD Trade Post at Pawnee and Seneca and say hi to our friend Leslie and the gang. And I think that's about it. So until next time, guys, cheers to the weird shit in the world and to those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the Paranormal Highway. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal your guide to the unusual and the strange.